Hey everybody, it's Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon, a sermon about being right with God. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to let you know that we have a bunch of cool things, important things I should say, coming up online in the near future. About a week ago, we had a leadership meeting, and in that meeting, we spent over an hour brainstorming how we could continue to help people experience and express God's glory, which is the mission of our church. Out of that meeting came a lot of great ideas that are going to turn into a lot of really important things, I think, that we're going to put online. And we're going to do some things to help people connect more fully to our church. We're going to do some things to help people grow spiritually. We're going to do some things to help people find a way to serve when they're stuck at home. And so I'm really excited about the things that we have coming up. And I'm telling you that because I want you to be a part of those things, but you won't be a part of them if you don't know the details. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to creekside.me and subscribe to our newsletter. Creekside.me is really our home on the web for all the next steps at our church. And when you get there, you just scroll down a little bit. You'll see a button that says subscribe, click it, fill out the form, and then you will be on our newsletter, which means you will get the details about these events that we have coming up. Again, thanks for listening, everyone. I hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Good morning, everybody, for the second time. Um, For those of you online that don't know me, my name is Chad. I'm the pastor of this church, and as Jared kind of cleans out here, uh, I'll just say that that I uh, think that God, God has has perfect timing in uh, in this sermon today, and I don't always feel that way. It's not always like it works out that way. But you know, we we backed up a week of sermons because Matt got sick, and and so we had to fill a gap. And we were supposed to have the twenty seventh as kind of a free spot, uh, and so everything got pushed back. And and I think out of that has come that. That you know, uh, just the perfect spot for this sermon. And I think it's perfect. Can't show you what's on the other side of this yet. Uh, I think it's perfect because, first, because of everything going on in the world. But second, I think it's perfect because, because it really connects to Christmas. And that was not really uh, the plan for this sermon, but it connects to Christmas. And and the way that it connects, I, I think, is simply that it is about it's about celebration and. Uh, I think a lot of people don't feel like celebrating right now. I saw this sign in, in the Dollar Tree. It says, Be Merry. And in most years, you know, I wouldn't even have noticed this sign. But but this year, you know, there's part of me that wants to be like, yeah, easy for you to say Santa. You know, you like live in the North Pole with only the elves, but I'm down here, you know, living life with this mess that we're all dealing with. And, uh, you know, I think I was, I don't know if this will connect to you at all, but my son is really into Jingle Bells, Batman Smells. And I actually think I connect with that song more this year than the regular version of Jingle Bells because I, I can really put myself in Batman and Robin's shoes um, far more easily, easily than normal. Like Batman smells like, well, I don't shower as much as I used to because I don't see people. So that, that clearly works for me. Uh, Robin laid an egg. It kind of feels like we're all laying eggs, right, in life right now, metaphorically speaking. I saw somebody post just yesterday, uh, not to be too sad in a funny moment, but uh, but just is there a general feeling of failure right now? And so many people, you know, connected with Robin and his egg laying. And then uh, Batmobile lost its wheel. I mean, a lot of people, again, kind of sad, but can't pay for their car repairs because finances have changed so drastically this year. And, and so I look at, you know, Santa here and his his be merry, and it's like, I don't 
don't know if many of us feel merry this year. I don't know if we would say that word. And so what I've noticed people doing to try to become more merry is they're like, hey, I'll just put on the right clothes and put the Christmas decorations out and I'll get my tree in July this year because for sure getting the tree in July is going to make me feel like really celebrating Christmas, right? And, and yet, I think when we look deeply inside, you know, most of us are not feeling as merry as we normally do. In fact, somebody said this to me the other day, and I, I'm actually pulling this out of context, so if you're the person who said it, I know this, there was some context to this, but, but it's a good general sentiment. If I could just snap my fingers and be past the holidays, I would do it. And then uh, just this week, actually, I, I had another person say virtually the same thing to me. Like, I just, I really don't feel like celebrating this year. And, and I think so many people are appreciating the distraction of Christmas, but we're not really in the mood to celebrate because, because we're struggling with so many different things. And here's what's cool. Here's what's cool. And I talk about God's timing in this sermon uh, this sermon it uses a word that I think we could translate celebrate three different times. And we didn't plan this out, like I said, to hit here. But, but it uses the word, you know, a word that we could translate celebrate three different times. And, and it gives us three reasons that we can celebrate no matter what's going on around us. And I think that they are worth looking at this morning. And I'll just tell you, you can hear them up front here. Here's, here's the big idea of the sermon. Because we stand in grace... We celebrate in certainty, we celebrate in suffering, and we celebrate in our Savior. Because we stand in grace, we celebrate in certainty, in suffering, and in our Savior. And here's how Paul begins in Romans 5, 1 through 2 to tell us about the reasons that we can celebrate. He says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. There's been these kind of big, very important theological words. Uh, righteous, which we have learned means innocent or being right with God. That's how I would very simply summarize that the meaning of that word. He has said that our faith will be counted or reckoned as righteousness. And I explained that as God simply counting us as innocent despite the fact that he had to clean up our mess. Maybe you saw me pour the toys out last week. Uh, and then as we are counted righteousness, we are, we are then allowed, it allows for us to be justified, which means declared innocent or declared righteous. Now, I, I say all that, and, and I, I just want to make a, a little bit of an advertisement here. Um, I've been doing these things that I'm calling the Bible Breakdown each week, and, and if you haven't seen those, I would just, I would say get on. I spent about 10 minutes drawing over, just kind of marking up uh, Bible passages that I've preached on, the one I'll preach on this today, and then I'll mark it up, and uh, and 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 I explain these things. And this week, uh, I am going to, uh, my daughter, for those of you who are not here, is throwing stuffed animals up into the air. Uh, it's a little bit distracting. It's like a party in here. Uh, uh, I'm going to, to talk about these three words more in detail for this week's Bible Breakdown. So if you haven't been watching those, I would recommend that you do that. But really, what Paul is getting at here is that we have been made righteous, we have been called righteous, we have been justified, and so therefore, there are some things that we can celebrate. I think we should be all happy about this. We want some things to celebrate, and, and Paul is saying, here, I'll give you some reasons that you 
can celebrate, but it all begins with this big idea. We have this righteousness. We've been declared righteous. We've been called righteous. We are righteous. And that allows for us to have what he says here, peace with God, peace with God. Peace doesn't mean like inner tranquility, you know, peace dude or whatever that that we sometimes think of. Peace here refers to a lack of strife between us and God. And the picture that the Bible paints is that because of our sin, there is separation between us and God. There's, there is, there's strife between us and God. We are, in fact, called enemies at one point in Scripture, and we'll see in a minute that this is the language that Paul uses for us. And, and because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, we are declared righteous, and that means that the strife between us and God has gone away. We have gone from being enemies of God. When we place our faith in the gift that he has offered, we go from being enemies of God to being the family of God, to being at peace with God. And, and then he says that, that this happens. We have this access through our Lord Jesus Christ. Put that in your heads. We're going to really, really, really come back to that this morning. And then he says that we have this access by faith, as I've already mentioned, into this grace in which we now stand. Grace. He says that all of this is possible, this peace with God, because of our righteousness through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the access comes by faith into grace that we now stand. Now I'm going to hit on this, you know, much bigger next week. I'm really, we're going to talk a lot about grace in my sermon next week. But for now, let me just, let me just, preface it by saying that the idea here is that we move from one space to another. We move from a place of condemnation, a place of wrath. We move from a place of being at odds with God, an enemy of God, and we move into a place of grace. My son is the loudest whisperer in the world. Um, And so we move from, from a place of being at odds with God to a place of Grace. Let me. I, I'm going to use this illustration today and next week because I, I paid money for this illustration last week. Uh, my kids, who are are normally, you know, really good about being at church uh, and just, you know, they're here all day on Sundays and and they do most of the time a, a fairly good job. You know, they're throwing stuff to animals and stuff, but that's fine. I'm fine with all that. But last week they were not in good moods. It was a it was a struggle uh, and. And so we were, you know, done with the night. We were headed home. It was, I don't know, 8.30 or something p.m. on Sunday night. And, and, and I, I was not very happy at all. But I, I use these moments sometimes to teach my kids about grace. And I didn't just do this for the purpose of illustration, but it was a, a nice benefit. And so I said, you know what? Let's go get ice cream. And then on the way, I say to Hazel and Hudson, I say, what we're doing right now is a representation of grace. They don't like these speeches very much, but they deal with them. And, I, and then I went on to say, what is grace? And, and, and basically we explain it this way to our kids, and I think it's a good explanation. It is a gift when we deserve punishment. It's a gift when we deserve punishment. And, and Paul here says that, that we, because of the work of Jesus, and he's going to really hit home on that in a minute, because of the work of Jesus, we've gone from being at odds with God into being right with God, being righteous and having peace with God. And this is a gift that in a place where we deserve punishment. That's what we move into. And, and this isn't like one of actually Paul's uh, big points here. Um, 
as far as, as you know, what we can celebrate. He doesn't use the word celebration here, but I think it's just worth mentioning that this is something that we can celebrate, that God gave us a gift. We'll talk about that word next week. Gave us a gift when we deserved punishment. And, and here's the big idea. Because we stand in grace, we celebrate in certainty, we celebrate in suffering, and we celebrate in our Savior, but we can also celebrate in grace. And then he, he moves on and he says in Romans 5, 2, and we boast... That's the word, boast. We boast in the hope of glory. Boast is the word that comes up three times. And, and when we think of boasting, we often think of it as, as like, you know, like bragging, like, uh, you know, being arrogant or whatever. But the word it actually most literally just means to speak loud or be loud-tongued, which obviously, if you think of somebody who's bragging or being arrogant or cocky or whatever, that, that is a way that we can see that, Right. But other times in scripture, this word is actually, it's actually translated as I glory in something. It's in my mind, it's really celebrating something. It's, it's, it's being excited about something in a way that causes you to talk about that something. And so Paul here, he says that we boast in the hope of glory. Now, let me be clear that we do not boast in ourselves. Listen to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, so that nobody can you know, loudly celebrate themselves. In Galatians 6, 14, Paul really gets to the point, may I never boast except in, this is really key, in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. And really what we have in our passage, Romans 5, is an, ex an expression by Paul. He's writing about the reasons that we can boast in our Lord Jesus Christ. We might, we should not, we ought not boast in ourselves and what we can do and who we are and how great, you know, we act. But we should, we should boast or celebrate the things that Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. The first thing here that he says is that we boast in the hope of the glory of God. I said this last week, but it, it bears repeating. I need to repeat it here. Hope in Scripture is never wishful thinking. It's never used that way. It is always about confident expectancy, or in other words, certainty. Paul says that we can boast in the certainty of the glory of God. Now, we believe as a church that, you know, connected to everybody's purpose, as was mentioned in our welcome this morning, it connected everybody's purpose is this big idea that we aim for as a church, and that is to experience and express God's glory. God's glory is everything that demonstrates how much greater and better and more all-powerful and all-knowing and all-wonderful and loving God is. But here, I think that, that the idea is not just, you know, we boast in the fact that God is glorious. We boast in the fact that we get to share in the glory of God, that we get to experience the glory of God in eternity. I, I've read this passage at least one other time in the last eight or nine months in our, in our sermons, maybe a couple of times, because I think it's just so important to remember the future that we who are Christians have to look forward to. Here, here's Romans 21, 1 through 4, describing the end, describing the time when we will experience the glory of God in the most full and, and glorious way. And here's what it, what it says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. 
I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. God's glory. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. You see, right now we live in the old order of things. It's for us the present order of things, but when we look back from eternity, the eternal perspective of Revelation chapter 21, it's the old order of things, and we are living in that state right now, and there is tons of death and mourning and crying and pain. But because of the work of, of Christ on the cross, we know that someday we will be in the presence of God. We will be in the glorious state of being with God. And then all of our tears will be wiped away as God removes for eternity all of the sorrow and the suffering that we face. And Paul here in Romans 5, he's writing to the people in Rome and then subsequently us, and he's saying one of the things that we ought to celebrate, no matter what's going on in our lives, one of the things that we ought to celebrate is that Jesus allowed for us to be certain of an eternity that will be glorious, an eternity that will be perfect because we will no longer suffer any of the things that we suffer now. I think that's a big deal. As you go through the Christmas season this year and you think, well, you know, do I really feel like celebrating? I would say, remember what you're celebrating, the birth of Jesus. And without the birth of Jesus, there is no certainty for an eternity in glory. But Paul can, I think Paul almost can hear our comeback. Like, well, that's well and great, but I'm still, you know, suffering now. And that makes celebrating difficult, even though if there is, there is the certainty of heaven. And And so he continues in verses three through five. Not only so, but we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Really interesting here. The word glory that I just read is the same word for boast. And I don't know why the NIV translation chose to uh, switch between the two verses. I actually think it makes it harder to see kind of the plain idea of this passage. But, uh, but that word is boast, or you know, the way I'm using it this morning, and I think it's, it's a good way to use it. We celebrate not only in the glory that we look forward to, but we also celebrate in our sufferings. Why? Well, it's not because we find pleasure in our Our pain or our sickness is the message of Romans says. It is rather the recognition that there is a divine rationale behind suffering. If listen, this is such an important idea. If God allows for you to suffer, if you're a Christian and God allows for you to suffer, then it is because God is doing something important in your life through that suffering. That doesn't mean that God is causing the suffering. It doesn't mean that that you know God likes the suffering, that it doesn't, doesn't care about your suffering. It just means that if God is allowing for you to suffer, it means that he is working it towards something good in your life. And Paul here refers to you know kind of a progression that, that, that happens when we suffer. The suffering produces perseverance. And the perseverance produces tested character. That word is hard for us to understand, I think. You know, it's not, I know what perseverance is. I know what hope is. Um, but 
but what is tested character? And the idea of tested character, it's really the idea of a person who has learned to stand up, to keep going in the midst of difficulty. And we don't necessarily want to be those people. Uh, But I think about, you know, uh, baseball and playing baseball for so many years. And um, when I was a kid, man, every time I lost a game, I would cry. I I think I've told this story before, but but uh, this very vivid memory in my mind that turned out to be a good memory. But but I remember losing a game and then crying in the outfield, and my dad was trying to console me, and I was away from all my teammates, and and then the sprinklers came on, you know, and uh, and and there was probably a lot of moments like that. I remember, you know, crying in Montana when we lost. I, I have these were these were normal moments. I did not take losing well. I don't take it that well now, but I don't cry. Uh, and what happened over my years in baseball is I learned to act right even when things didn't go my way. It took some time. It took some effort out of my dad and God. <laughs> but, but over time, I learned to suffer, to lose in a way that was, I think, positive, in a way that was, you know, at least I wasn't making a fool of myself. And, and that's kind of the idea betwi- behind this tested character. You learn perseverance. Perseverance is withstanding pressure and, and dealing with the difficulties of life. But over time, as you continue to, to work on persevering, God then turns you into a person who is able to deal with the struggles of life better. And as we deal with the struggles of life better, it produces within us hope, which comes back to the big idea that Paul's already given us, that we hope in the certainty of glory. And so Paul's saying that even in your suffering, it's moving you to a place where you are learning to hope in the glory that you have to look forward to. So Paul says, look, we can, we can celebrate in, in our certainty but we can also celebrate in our suffering because we know that our suffering is producing quality things within us that allow for us to remember and reflect and hope in the glory that God has offered us. Whatever you suffer, if you're a Christian, whatever you suffer, you can know that God is working those things and working in those things for your good, as Paul will say in Romans 8. And so we celebrate now we don't, again, I just, some may be so clear, we don't celebrate that we, you know, are dealing with them. We don't celebrate that we are financially struggling, that we're sick, that we're scared we're going to get sick, that people around us are getting sick and dying. We don't celebrate those things. We celebrate that we serve a God who is so gracious to us, that we've moved to grace, and so we serve a God, we know we serve a God who is even taking all of those things we don't like, and he is working them for our good. And then in Romans 5, 5, he, he says, this is why your hope doesn't disappoint you. He says, because God's love has been poured out into your hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Uh, now, I think one of the reasons we struggle to hope is because we've been disappointed before. If you've ever really, really been hopeful for something, we don't like, I don't think we like using that word because it sets us up for failure, right? But if you ever really hoped for something, and we downplay, we'll say, like, I kind of, I kind of, you know, want that to happen or whatever. But if you were really hoped and then that, whatever you hoped for, did not come true, then you know how crushing it can be when our hopes are disappointed. And I think that probably transfers to our relationship with God. Yeah, we want to hope that He's, you know, in glory. We want to hope that He's working our, our suffering for good, but we've been disappointed before. And so we're, we're reluctant to actually. Hope, but but man, 
Our hope does not disappoint, Paul says, because, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives as Christians. This is what the Bible teaches. We don't talk about it a lot, the Holy Spirit. I don't think we talk about it enough. But the Holy Spirit comes into our lives in a very real way when we become Christians. And he does a lot of things biblically for us. And, and he helps us. He guides us. He, he you know, uh, is a guarantee of our inheritance in heaven. I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. But one of the things he does is he pours the love of God into our hearts. This is an eye-opening idea to me because... Because I've known about the love of God since I was four years old. If you've been at our church, you know, for a while, then you may know my story. I became a Christian. I'm going to put that in quotes. I, I, I prayed a prayer to become a Christian when I was four years old. I don't know if I was really a Christian at that point or not. That's up for other people to debate theologically. But when I was 17, something changed, and God convicted me of my sin, but that wasn't really, you know, the the most important part of what changed, what, what really changed is that, this really explained it for me, the love of God seemed to be poured into my heart so that it overflowed and made me want to be a pastor even. It, 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 his love poured into my heart. I saw this, this is an easy one for us to understand as Oregonians, that that, that word connects to like a rainstorm. And, and I, I like that imagery that like the love of God, like the Holy Spirit brings it like a rainstorm. And maybe it doesn't actually connect as Oregonians because I was in Idaho once and for two months actually. So it wasn't just once, like for a second, I've been in Idaho more than once a, a lot of times, but I spent two months there. And those people don't actually know how to deal with rain. In fact, I was in Pocatello, Idaho, second biggest city in all of Idaho, and nobody seems to know it exists. That's Idaho for you. Uh, but but there was rainstorms when I was there. And they don't have, their whole plan for rainstorm drainage is that they build their cities downhill towards the river. Like that's how they deal with rainstorms. And I will never forget this moment when I went outside and it was raining and the water in the street was so high that there were two men, it seemed old to me then, but they probably were younger than I am now, um, they were swimming in the street, like, you know, it was like a kiddie pool, but like, uh, so gross. If you're that guy and you're watching online, you have problems, but like, they're out there swimming. And, and this is, this whole story is just coming in my head, but I think that, that that's better than in Oregon. We get a rainstorm and it just kind of funnels out. But what happens in, with the Holy Spirit is that, that the rainstorm of God's love comes in and it fills us up. You know, there's no outlet. There shouldn't be an outlet. We just get filled up by the love of God. I love that. And so one of the reasons that hope, you know, we know that it won't disappoint is the guarantee of God's love through the Holy Spirit. I think it's important to, to mention that, that the Holy Spirit, as I said, is a, is a guarantor of our, of our, um, of our future in heaven. And, and Paul actually makes that clear in 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And then Paul says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So the Holy Spirit not only pours the love of God into us and, you know, tells us that we are not wrong to hope in what God has done for us, but he also is, is the down payment. He's the, he's the deposit on the future that we have to look forward to 
in eternity. And so look, I think that most often when we're disappointed in our hope, it's because you know, it's somebody who really doesn't love us maybe as much as we thought they loved us. I think that's actually the number one thing that disappoints people when they realize somebody doesn't love them as much as, as they thought they loved them. This image just keeps coming into my mind, but, but you know, like that idea of, of a kid who lives with their mom and they're, they're expecting their dad to show up on the weekend for their visitation or whatever, um, and then they don't show up, that's disappointment. And that kid questions their love, but the Holy Spirit has, has poured his, God's love into our hearts, and so we don't have to be scared to hope in the glory that he has promised because we've experienced his love. And Paul, now again, it's like he hears the comeback because we go like, well, what if I'm not experiencing that love? Because we don't always feel God's love in the same way. Sometimes I really feel and experience God's love, but sometimes I, I don't really feel and experience God's love and then Paul's like, well, that's not the, this is what he's going to say. That's not the only reason that you know that you're not wrong to disappoint. It's not the only reason that you can trust the love of God because there's this other giant, bigger, maybe better reason. And here it is in verses six through eight. You see, at just the right time when we were, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates or proves his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the Holy Spirit pours his love into us, but Christ, he proved God's love for us by dying for us. I mean, while most people wouldn't choose to die for a righteous man or even a good man, you go, well, what's the difference there? And most people seem to think that a righteous man is just somebody who's, you know, you know people like this probably. They do all the right things, but there's no warmth to them. Like that, you know, you go, well, they don't ever seem to do anything wrong, but you don't really like them. And then a good man in this is probably somebody that, you know, does all the right things and they're just, you know, they're warm and they're affectionate and they're loving. And, and, you know, you, you, most people wouldn't die for anybody, right? Whether they're righteous or good. Uh, But Jesus... He came to die for us while we were still sinners. We were neither righteous nor good. In that state, Jesus died for you. I saw this idea and I loved it. The measure of love is connected to the cost of the gift and the unworthiness of the receiver. The measure of love is connected to the cost of the gift and the unworthiness of the receiver. And let me, let me demonstrate it through this book that I've read uh, recently to my kids. Uh, Does anybody, this will mean you are probably a 1980s Christian um, uh, kid, uh, but does anybody remember the stories of Critter County? Anybody remember those books? Oh, we got one because you have kids that were out of the 1980s, but uh, so a few. uh, And Critter County, these these, I like these books, even as an adult. They're very good. They teach life lessons. And the one we read recently is about this this animal. They're all animals that they wanted a remote control car from his grandma for Christmas. And she got him a scarf. And she got him a scarf, and, and he has this horrible, horrible attitude about it. And he's just, you know, I can't believe that that woman, you know, would, would not get me what I thought she was going to get me. And Sydney, like the pastoral figure, the, the chipmunk in this story, uh, 
he sits down with this this little you know this little other animal. I don't remember what animal it is, but and he says, "What do you think cost your grandma more?" I mean, she could have easily gone down to the store and bought you your remote control car, but instead she chose to spend a whole bunch of time making you this wonderful scarf. And he sees he sees the cost this kid. And I think he sees the cost combined with his unworthiness because of his terrible attitude. And all of a sudden, the scarf becomes priceless to him. And this is what Paul is talking about here. We completely were completely undeserving of the gift that God gave us. And the gift cost God everything because his one and only son had to die. And that demonstrates an incredible amount of love, a priceless amount of love. John 3.16 says, in the NIV version, so I have to read it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only, one and only son that whoever believed in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You know what Paul is saying here? He's saying we don't just celebrate in our certainty and we don't celebrate in our suffering. We, we celebrate in our Savior and how great he is. Now look, let me, let me just, both of these things are true, but I, but I think we, we really focus on one and not the other enough. It's not, cel- it's not saying we celebrate our salvation here. It's not saying that we celebrate what we have in salvation. Well, that's good. We should celebrate that too. We already talked about grace. But it's that we celebrate in how great our Savior is, that he loved us so much that he would sacrifice everything despite the fact that we are completely unworthy. We celebrate not just our salvation, but we celebrate our Savior. Paul continues in verses 9 and 10, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were still while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? The big idea of verses 9 and 10 is like this. If God did the hard thing of being willing to suffer and die on our behalf, then how much more will he do the easy thing of inviting us to spend eternity with him? I love, I just, I think it's so important here, these two words, justified, declared innocent. I hope that you know that by now. If somebody ever asked you, what does justified mean in the Bible? It means I've been declared innocent. And I've been declared innocent because I was counted as righteous or innocent. And I I was counted as innocent because I became innocent through Jesus' death and resurrection. And so he says we've been justified, but then he, he connects that word to reconciled. We've been reconciled. We have peace with God. We've been reconciled to God. Our relationship has been made right with God. And I love that the Roman people, actually, this is, I didn't know this until studying for this sermon, but the Roman emperors made a big deal of reconciliation. Look, we have been reconciled to that nation over here. You want to know how they, they obtained that reconciliation? They just went and attacked them and said, you're going to be part of us. And they'd come back and say, look, Those people who tried to leave our great nation, they've been reconciled now. Look, we have peace with them because we took them over. And the Roman people that are reading this, they would be very familiar with the idea of reconciliation. And you can be sure that they would have seen the incredible difference here 
Instead of shedding other people's blood for reconciliation, Jesus shed his blood so that we could be reconciled to him. I mean, listen to the way Paul describes us here because I think this makes our Savior even better. We were powerless. We were unable to to obtain this reconciliation on our own. We were powerless. We were ungodly. We were sinners. And even we were enemies. And in this state, God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son to die for our sins. His blood was shed for our justification and reconciliation. And so we go from powerless, ungodly, sinner enemies to having peace, grace, joy, hope, and a future in glory. And it's all because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. He finishes in verse 11. Not only this, here it is. This is what he gets to, right? He's described all this, but now he just says it all right. Not only this, but we also boast. We also celebrate. We also talk about how great this thing is. That in God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Not only is this so, but we also boast in, our, in God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul brings it all the way back. You can, you can celebrate your, the grace of God, but you celebrate that grace because it gives us hope and it gives us a purpose in suffering and it gives us this incredible Savior that we get to love and be loved by. When we stand in grace, we boast in hope, we boast in suffering, and we boast in God. I think it's really important that we remember that we were powerless, ungodly sinner enemies who have now become people of peace, grace, joy, hope, and glory. The message of Romans says, listen to this, this is, so, this is, this is a big deal. As we move towards Christmas and, and, and we think, man, I just wish I could skip the holidays. I, I don't feel like celebrating. Listen to what the message of Romans says, not a Christmas book, just a commentary on the book of Romans. The mark of justified believers is joy, especially joy in God himself. We should be the most positive people in the world for the new community of Jesus Christ is characterized not by a self-centered triumphalism, but by a God-centered worship. And when we remember all that Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross, we should not be looking in and saying, am I doing enough to feel, is enough happening that I can feel merry, that I can, you know, celebrate because all my circumstances are good and everything's right for me. But we should turn our eyes to our Savior who's moved us from enemy to in grace and we should celebrate in certainty and we should celebrate in suffering and we should celebrate in our Savior. I want to conclude by saying if Santa calls you to be merry, I think that that's exactly what Paul is calling us to. Not to love everything that we're dealing with or act like nothing's wrong because I can't, this is me, not Paul, I can't stand when Christians act like nothing ever bad ever happens. I, that I think is so fake and I think our world is like, are you kidding me? It's not that. It's that we're married despite all of the difficult things that we are dealing with because Because when we stand in grace, we can celebrate in certainty, in suffering, and in our Savior. And so this Christmas, you be merry because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross.